Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. If you want to get happier, get out in nature. That is one of the blazingly obvious pieces of advice we hear all the time. I'm guilty of this, in fact. You may have heard me talk about my pantheon of no-brainers, the simple things everybody can do to boost their health and their happiness, including sleep, meditation, exercise, healthy eating, etc. I usually have nature right there on the list. We know it can improve your mood, induce awe, help you sleep, and much more. But how helpful is the advice, really, if it becomes the kind of thing that you know you should do, but you don't actually have the time to do it, so it just ends up making you feel less happy every time you hear it? Today, we're going to get some very practical and, to be a little cute, down-to-earth advice with a Scandinavian twist. We haven't covered all of the Scandinavian approaches to happiness that much on this show. I consider that to be a little bit of an oversight on my part. You may have heard of some of the Scandinavian happiness concepts, such as Huga, which is all about the joy we can derive from being in cozy and convivial indoor atmospheres. Today, we're going to talk about the flip side of the coin, which is called Freeluftsliv, which is harder to pronounce than it is to understand, I promise you. Basically, it's all about the joy of what's called the open-air life, of being outside. My guest today has made a whole career of giving people practical strategies for boosting well-being via nature. Her name is Linda Aukesson McGurk, and she's a Swedish-American writer. Her first book was called There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, A Scandinavian Mom's Secret for Raising Healthy, Resilient, and Confident Children. Now she's got a book for everybody, parents or not. It's called The Open Air Life, Discover the Nordic Art of Freeliftsleeve and Embrace Nature Every Day. In this conversation, we talk about why humans are so drawn to nature and what the many scientific benefits are, the historic roots of freeliftsleeve in Nordic countries, why we should go outside even when the weather sucks, why we should go camping, which I fight her on, the benefits of cold plunges, the benefits of silence, the danger of seeing ourselves as separate from nature, and why she believes appreciation of nature and meditation are complementary. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. 
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. The I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Linda Orkasan McGurk. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm still suspecting that I kind of mangled your name. Say it correctly, just so everybody hears it correctly. Okay, so it's Orkason. It's Swedish. Orkason. Orkason, yeah. Okay, all right. I think I'm like, you know, 60% of the way there, but it's a beautiful name. Sorry, I'm, I'm messing it up. More importantly, I'm really happy to have you on the show, and I'm excited to talk about another word that I will mangle. I think it's Freelutz leave? Am I close on that one? Uh, yeah, almost, almost. I <laughs> would go with friluftsliv. So you can hear the F in there too. So it's friluftsliv. Friluftsliv. Yes, a nice rolling of the R there too. Thank you. At least I've done something right this morning <laughs> in this interview. Uh, can you describe or define, please, friluftsliv? Yes. So this word is, I would say, not, not very well known in the U.S., at least not yet. I'm hoping my book might change that. But like another Scandinavian word, hygge, which you might have heard of. Yes, that yes. is just for the uninitiated, spelled H-Y-G-G-E and has been the subject of at least one massively best-selling book. Yes. There's probably like 20 on the topic, at least. And so hygge is kind of coziness roughly translated. And I would say that friluftsliv in very simple terms is like the outdoorsy cousin of hygge. It's sort of all the things that we do outside before we come home and cozy up in front of the fireplace with our wool socks on and hot cocoa. So it's basically spending time outside in the cultural and natural landscape, partly for personal wellness but also to just experience nature without any pressure to achieve or compete. It's typically non-motorized, it's non-competitive, it's usually very simple, slow activities that you can do with few means and doesn't necessitate a lot of money. In its simplest forms, it could be as simple as going for a walk around the neighborhood. And in fact, I think that's the most common form of friluftsliv. But it can also be like riding a bike or foraging, camping, kayaking, ice skating, cold swimming, cooking over an open fire, learning survival skills, all kinds of activities. But it's really not so much about the activities as it is about connecting with nature 
in simple ways. And most of the time, it's your nearby nature. So the nature that's accessible to you on a regular basis. So it's this sort of culturally learned rhythm. And it's also something that's passed down from one generation to the next. It's a, it's a lifestyle of sorts. And it's something that, you know, if you grow up in the Nordic countries, it's just something that you're raised in. It's the culture that you're raised in. And the primary goal, like I said, part of it is wellness, but it's also to feel joy because people feel a genuine joy out there. And it actually goes back to the 1850s. And from the beginning, it was a reaction against industrialization and urbanization. You know, you think 1850s, that was 170 years ago. Like even back then, people were starting to realize that they needed to get away from the noise and the crowds and the pollution that the factories were causing in the cities. And Friluftsliv became that way to sort of reconnect with the countryside that so many people had left behind to seek work in the city. So people started to go for excursions to the countryside and just sort of enjoy the fresh air. It started in the upper classes, actually, because they were the ones who were the most separated from nature and from the manual labor in the fields. So they had to sort of create this to reconnect. They had to reinvent it for themselves. So Friluftsliv became that way to reconnect. And then the government actually caught on to this as well. And in the beginning of the 20th century, and, and especially sort of in the 1930s, when people are starting to get a little more time off, then the working class started discovering Friluftsliv as well. And the government supported it because they realized the benefits early on, long before there were any studies on the health benefits of nature. So they started creating parks and green spaces where people could go outside and reconnect with nature. So it's been sort of evolving since the 1850s. And there's also a conservation aspect of it. So the idea being that if people are connected with nature, then we will also act to protect it. So from the beginning, it was about creating national parks and other green spaces for preservation. And then it moved more to conservation. And, and today, you know, we talk about climate change and we know that it's not enough to just preserve certain wilderness areas and parks, but we also, you know, the politics uh, also have to come with it to protect against global climate change. So those two have kind of gone and in lockstep from the early days. And as I understand it, free Luftsleev means fresh air living? Yes, or open air living is what I translate it to in my book. But literally, yes, it literally means free air living. Open air living is a little more loosely translated. You could say that the main point is to spend as much time as possible outside. And Huga, am I pronouncing that right? Well, that's Danish, so that's a little out of my expertise in some Swedish, okay. <laughs> but I, I, would, I would pronounce it Huga. Huga. But don't quote I love me on that. that. <laughs> okay, I won't. But uh, let's go with Huga. Huga is what you do after you've done the free Luftsleev. And I love that Huga is what has caught on in America because we don't want to do the work part, but we <laughs> yeah. love the chilling part afterwards. <laughs> right, right. That's a good point because uh, free Luftsleev does involve challenging yourself in certain ways too. Physically, since it's non-motorized, it's about, you know, getting places with your feet or by pedaling. So that's an important part of it as well. 
to feel that contrast, to feel that you've worked for something. It's viewed as a way to instill resilience, which is part of the reason why the military, actually the defense department supported it when it was just starting to catch on. They were quick to embrace it because they saw the value in a fit population, of course, for defense reasons. And it's been taught in schools too. It's been a part of the curriculum for students as well for well over 100 years here because it is seen as a good way to strengthen yourself physically and mentally. So it sort of covers all those bases, really. Why is this of such urgent interest to you? Um, I think it really hit home for me when I moved to the U.S. and I had children there. And I realized that they were going to have a very different childhood from the one I'd had growing up here. I noticed that people just weren't outside almost at all in the wintertime where I lived. And I just thought it was a shame because I didn't want my children to miss out on a good, you know, six months of the year just because the weather wasn't agreeable. Because that's another important part of Friluftsliv is that we do this on a more or less daily basis, regardless of the weather. So that's where the saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing comes in, which is frequently used over here, especially with children who don't want to go outside. So, you know, I realized that they weren't going to get that and that a lot of people were just sort of hibernating and and saw it as abnormal almost to be outside. So I stuck out. Like I would take my kids out in the freezing weather and I was told even by health professionals that it was dangerous and some people thought I was brave for being out there. Others probably just thought I was crazy, but I thought I was just doing what I had done or what my parents had done with me when I was little. And I thought, I was just doing what everybody was. So that's kind of when it dawned on me that this Friluftsliv culture wasn't really a thing probably outside of the Nordic countries, or at least not in in Indiana where I lived at the time. And that's when I kind of embarked on this uh, mission to sort of inspire and educate. I started a blog. I wrote my first book, Uh, There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, And it just started advocating and speaking about the importance for children to be outside all year round. But it's not just for kids. It's important for us adults, too. Once again, I come back to that environmental part of it. And that is that if we are just inside and we're not experiencing, you know, the seasonal changes outside and we're becoming alienated from nature, then who's going to be there to protect nature when climate change is happening and all sorts of other environmental challenges and pollution. So from childhood and up, we need to know how the ecosystem works and how we're so intimately connected, all of us. And that's another important Difference, I think, I I feel like in the Nordic countries, I think we view humans more as as part of nature, whereas in the U.S., we tend to have more of an other perspective, that we view nature as something separate from ourselves. And I think there's a danger in that point of view where you just see nature as something to extract resources from, then you don't realize that without nature, there are no humans either. 
nature could go on without us, but we obviously were nothing without nature. So it's crucial that we reconnect with nature, with the wild. And not just with the wild places. This is something that I talk about a lot too. I think nearby nature is sort of undervalued. And I feel like when we think of nature, we often think of those really wild places, you know, out west, the national parks, where you might take a a road trip once a year. Whereas we really need to be looking at the places where we live, the cities in the industrialized world, that's where almost 80% of us live now. And we really need our cities to be walkable and green. That's where you got to start because that's the nature that's accessible to us now. And even if you live in a city like New York, there are those pockets of green where you can go for recuperation and restoration. And those are so important So I think city planners have a real responsibility here and local governments too, where you can create those spaces where people can really go to boost their mental health because it's one of the cheapest forms of preventive health care there is, really. Just like meditation, Fidu Sleeve has a lot of the same health benefits. They, They actually overlap a lot. You can get that sort of relaxation from stress and prevention of anxiety and depression and stress reduction and also like physical responses that are measurable when you're outside. Your cortisol levels go down, which, you know, cortisol is a stress marker and blood pressure goes down, you know, and all these are measurable effects of being out there in green spaces. Actually, that was where I was going to go next, which is to what the benefits are. You said a little bit there. Can you say a little bit more about why we should take you seriously and operationalize this advice? Yeah. So there's a range of physical benefits. I mentioned a few already. Another one is vitamin D, for example. We've gotten used to being very scared of the sun now. And of course, we should have respect for the sun because of the cancer risk. But we must not forget that we also really need the sun for vitamin D production, which vitamin D is key to our immune system and just a host of other processes in the body. There is, like I said, the effect on the cortisol levels and stress reduction. Fidu sleeve is by nature, I mean, Physical activity is sort of built into it. I mean, you don't have to be physically active every time you're outside. You know, if it's really hot out there, like lying in a hammock can be open air life too. But a lot of times it does involve physical activity and that's known to have a huge effect on our health, even um, some forms of cancer and heart disease. I mean, look at any of the big lifestyle diseases today and physical activity has a positive effect on that. So essentially, any of those effects from physical activities you can get through open air life. And it doesn't have to be that you're out running marathons either. Like I said earlier, Fidus Leave is non-competitive. So just a brisk walk a few times a week, that alone can reduce your risk of serious disease. And then the mental benefits, like I said, stress reduction, and there's also a known link between nature exposure and less risk of anxiety and depression. 
And so, for example, here in Sweden, nature therapy and friluftsliv are commonly used by the uh, public health system, actually, to treat people who have been burnt out, some from work, some from just emotional events, like in their personal lives, but a lot of it work-related. And there are these programs, they can last for a couple of months. And the participants, they get to come and, and be outside, create things like making nature crafts, going for walks in the forest. They plant things. They have like little gardens. And then when they've evaluated these programs, they found that they've actually been more effective at getting people back to work than the traditional methods, which has been just like sick leave and therapy. And this is people who have been on sick leave for a long time, some of them for several years. And it's quite amazing to see the transformation that they've gone through. It started out as just a few pilot programs a few decades ago, and now these programs are everywhere. So they've kind of been incorporated into the public health system, which is pretty cool. Indeed. I think another benefit is sleep. Yes, yes. Daylight is, of course, really important to our circadian rhythms. All living beings sort of run on these 24-hour cycles called circadian rhythms. And when we're indoors, which most of us are a lot these days, in just being exposed to this artificial light, that sort of disrupts our natural circadian rhythms. So these are our natural timing devices, and they affect so many things in our bodies, like our hormone levels, eating habits, our body temperature even, and also our feelings of alertness or sleepiness. So when we're outside and we're exposed to this natural daylight, that regulates our circadian rhythms. And studies have shown that if you go out camping, even just for a couple of nights, that can reset your circadian rhythms. And that effect can actually last for several weeks. And it's pretty interesting here at these latitudes. I'm approximately at the same latitude as Alaska here in Sweden. So right now we have about 18 hours of daylight compared with six hours in the wintertime. And it's amazing. I can feel how it really affects my energy levels. And those contrasts are pretty extreme. And it's not unusual for me to wake up at 4.30 in the morning now and just get up and start my day, actually. I wouldn't say I have three times the energy that I do in the wintertime, but I do have a lot more energy in the summer than in the winter time. And of course, the other way around in the winter, we know that a lot of people here struggle with seasonal affective disorder, which has been tied to our circadian rhythms too, because when there's so little daylight, that can really affect how we feel mentally too. And a lot of people struggle with feeling down and just feeling blue. It's a big issue here in the wintertime, actually. So that makes it even more important to actually do get out in the wintertime. I always try to get out during my lunch break or in the middle of the day sometime. Morning light is the best, according to research. But here, daylight is so scarce that I try to get out whenever the light is the strongest, just to get that little dose. And I think it makes a huge difference in energy levels, even if you're just out for like half an hour I can tell my productivity goes up in the afternoon immensely when I do that. So that's why 
It's just as important, if not more important, to get outside in the wintertime. I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with the cold, but I really do try to inspire people to do it anyway, because you never regret a walk, just like you never regret a cold plunge. You always feel better afterwards, even if you have to make yourself do it. It is uncomfortable at first, but once you've done it, you don't regret it and you feel so much better afterwards. So sometimes you just have to use that as your motivation. You think about the way you're going to feel and then that becomes your inner motivation. That inner motivation is so important. That's the motor that makes it happen. Are there right ways and wrong ways to do this open-air living, do's and don'ts? No, I always encourage people to start where they are and use what they have and do what they can. Paraphrasing Arthur Ashe, the tennis player. Some people might feel like, well, I can't do this. I, you know, I live in the city. There's traffic and there are some obstacles. I think the key here really is to try and hone in on those spaces that you do have. And then I would also encourage people to really try to unplug while they're outdoors. Screens can become a distraction when you're out there, but they can also enhance the experience if you're taking photos, for example, of flowers or whatever it might be. So I'm not going to say, you know, don't take your cell phone. Cell phone's actually a great thing to have when you're out there, especially if you're out hiking somewhere. You know, you that's your first survival tool right there is your phone. But don't make it too complicated. I would say do what's accessible to you on a regular basis. Get the low-hanging fruit, for starters, just to make a, a habit of it. And then you can go after those wilder places. I think we all need those wilder places to sort of feel that sense of awe. We need to get to the places where, where we can really get away from it all, all the man-made stuff. But like I said, just start at home, start where you are and take it from there. The most important part is to build a habit, build a rhythm. It can be life transforming. I've heard it so many times from people who have read my books that it's been really a life changer once they started making nature a part of their everyday lives. I've done some of this because my family moved to the suburbs during the pandemic. Although as I'm listening to you talk, <laughs> because I'm, I'm in such Western productivity mode, I often think of getting outside as like another thing to do on my checklist and often am multitasking, meaning, okay, if I go outside, I'm going to do a few of my calls outside <laughs> or I'm going to work outside. Sometimes I am not multitasking. Sometimes I'll meditate outside. Mm -hmm. When I go running, I'll listen to music. So I'm wondering if all of those that I just listed fall under doing open air living incorrectly. No, I, I don't think so. You know, I think there needs to be a balance. If those things help you get outside, then that's a good thing. I would challenge you to not use your phone, at least sometimes, you know, part of the time, just because it is a different experience. Because your phone tends to create a bit of a barrier. So I think it's just different types of recreation, really. 
I think you do get closer to nature if you're not on a call or if you're not listening to an audiobook, but I would never tell anybody to never do that. I mean, when you look at what you're describing here, you're taking a call outside. Actually, I think that's a great way to get outside. If one of your obstacles to getting outside is a lack of time, and I know that's a common obstacle for a lot of people, then I think that's a great way of making sure that you actually get outside. If nothing else, you know, you get the physical activity. Yeah, so maybe you're not going to appreciate the bird song while you're on a conference call, while you're walking, but you're at least going to get the physical activity and the fresh air and the daylight. Those benefits remain. And here in Sweden, it's actually quite a common practice to go on walk and talk meetings during the workday. I mean, we even have the term walk and talk meeting. And a lot of companies actually do it because they recognize that as uh, beneficial to the workers' productivity and focus, just because it has other benefits than sitting in a conference room. It's just a different setting where you can have a conversation with people in a more democratic fashion, or it's just, it creates a different dynamic when you're out walking side by side rather than sitting facing each other in a conference room. So walk and talk meetings are a way, you could see it as a way of incorporating open air life into your workday. So that's one form of friluftsliv. So there are many different forms. And same with I said, listening to to an audiobook, but I would also challenge you to dare being in your own thoughts. And I suppose that's where meditation comes in a little bit too. There's a lot of overlap between meditation and where both are done for mental health benefits. They are relaxing and they offer a way to feel a part of something greater than yourself. So to actually marry the two and meditate while you're outside, I think it's fantastic. I'll go for some brownie points here and said that I read your book before uh, coming on the podcast here and I felt inspired by it, especially the part where you talk about the silent retreat that you went on. And I had already planned a three-day hike, a solo hike. So I decided, well, I'm going to do two of those days in silence and see how that goes. So I set out on this hike, and it was very interesting. I, I had to modify it a little bit. I met some people on the trail, and I felt like I kind of had to say hello, or they would think I was a complete a-hole. So I wasn't 100% <laughs> silent. But overall, I put my phone in uh, airplane mode, and I told all my friends and family that I wasn't going to be reachable for a couple of days And I found it very rewarding. And it was a way for me to take friluftsliv to another level. I'm not usually a meditator. So to me, it was a new challenge that I found very interesting. I don't see a problem with combining the two. I actually think that they are very complementary. Yeah, I think that probably the most friluftsliv thing that I do is take a walk unplug and just try to be mindful while walking, meaning I tune into the raw data of my senses, the feeling of my body moving, air on my skin, sounds in the environment. And then every time I get distracted, I start again and again and again. And that 
that is just walking meditation, informal walking meditation. So I, I think that very much fits into what you're describing. It's some of the other true multitasking that it sounds like it's not bad, but it's maybe not all the way there. Right, right. Yeah, I think they're complementary, but definitely try to get some of that pure feel sleeve in as well. To me, it's been immensely valuable over the years. I mean, you talk about your own sort of burnout in your book, and I've been sort of on the verge too in a toxic work situation where I was starting to have like little blackouts that really sort of scared me. I was in a bad situation work-wise and it was causing a lot of stress. I was at the same time going through a divorce and I decided that I had to refocus and I decided to do more of what I was already doing. So more time outside, more time in the woods and it helped me. Like when I'm outside, the only way I can describe it that seems fitting is that when I'm in the woods, I immediately feel like there's no place I'd rather be and there's nothing that's more important at that very moment than to just be there and be in the present moment. That's the <laughs> one of the few times when I'm actually a- able to completely shake off everything that has to do with work, just let go of that stress. It just has that sort of immediate effect on me. And obviously a lot of other people too. I mean, it is a proven method for reducing anxiety and depression. So definitely helpful on so many levels. One of the things that the Friluftsliv literature does is that it puts nature on a spectrum. So essentially the wilder a space is, the more restorative it will be. And, you know, so you have the entire spectrum from the very wild places to a city where you have birds, for example, they live everywhere. You have trees in the city. You know, nature can be anything in between that. Weather is also a form of nature, rain falling on our forehead, the wind blowing through our hair. So once you start thinking of nature as something that's all around us, then I think it helps shift your mindset a little bit and you start to really notice nature in your everyday life. That brings me back to what I was talking about earlier with the parks and how that space can really play into open air life in the U.S. and in modern cities. So There was a a Swedish researcher who studied the correlation between park space and people's health. So what they found was that people who live closer to green spaces, they were in better health, both physically and mentally. So the farther away from a green space that people live, the more stressed they were. They also had higher uh, body mass index and they were just less satisfied with their uh, home and their neighborhoods. But they they wanted to dig deeper because they wanted to know, well, what else? Is there a, a magical distance to a green space? And they found that about a thousand feet, that's the distance of where it becomes a daily habit. If you live more than a thousand feet from a green space, then it becomes like a weekend thing. If it's less than a thousand feet, then it's more, you're more likely to use it on a regular basis. So that was part of the study. And then another 
part of it was that they looked at different characteristics of the parks. So they tried to figure out what about the park space was it that people enjoyed. So it could be, for example, open space or like more secluded areas or uh, how biodiverse the parks were and how serene they were, like noise level and so forth. And they found that the participants in the study, that they rated serenity and space and having a lot of natural elements the highest. So those were the most sort of relaxing features. So the conclusion of all this is that if we can create more spaces like that in our cities, that can be used as a place for people to improve their health. And, you know, in the long run, it's so much more cost-effective than having people get sick and then treat the symptoms and treat the disease than to, to actually prevent the disease in the first place. Coming up, Linda talks about what cold plunging is and why it's so popular right now, whether there's actually proof that it's good for you, and why nature shows like Bird Radio and Moose TV became huge hits in Sweden during the pandemic. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
there's something you've mentioned a couple times that I would love to hear more about, which is cold plunging. That sounds terrible. We've talked about it a few times on the show. Can you describe what it is and what the benefits are and how we could do it if we're that brave? Yeah, I thought it sounded awful too until I got hooked. Cold plunging is basically swimming all year round, even in the wintertime. You cut a hole in the ice if it's that cold, you know, you cut a hole in the ice and you go down and, and take a plunge. Sometimes there's a sauna involved, but not necessarily. If you're really hardcore, you don't use a sauna. You just go straight for the plunge and then up. And of course, it's a form of cold water therapy. And there's really nothing new here. That's been around a lot longer than Friluftsliv. Um Already the old Greeks used cold water therapy and it was believed to treat a host of diseases. Some of that hasn't been proven, but it gives you a bit of a shock to the system. And this sort of triggers the noradrenaline production, which makes us more resilient to stress. So it triggers a little stress reaction in the body, which sounds counterintuitive, but you can compare it to uh, vaccination, for example, where your body gets a, a shot of a deactivated virus to you know, start its own production of antibodies. And cold plunge works similarly in that it boosts the immune system. It triggers the immune system uh, puts it in high alert. You know, there hasn't been a lot of studies on it, but the studies that have been done have been very promising. They've seen, you know, a, a reduced risk of airway infection, for example, which is also a bit counterintuitive. I, th I think all mothers at some point have told their kids, don't go outside without a hat on in, in the wintertime or don't go out with wet hair or, you know, because we think of us getting cold can cause us to develop infections. But in fact, the opposite seems to be true here with a cold plunge that we can actually strengthen our immune system by submerging ourselves in cold water. But I would say the reason why most people here do it is it boosts your general feeling of wellness. And I know people who've done it to treat depression and burnout as well, stress. It increases circulation. It's had some effect on fatigue and pain. I have a, a neighbor who has arthritis and she uses it to help soothe those symptoms. So yeah, once again, lots of physical and mental benefits. So I started doing it a few years ago too. And yeah, I enjoy it as strange as it might sound. It's once again, it's like you just have to push yourself through the initial shock. And once you're over that, then it's a pretty cool thing. And it really had a moment during the pandemic when people <laughs> were looking for all sorts of ways of entertaining themselves without seeing other people and preferably outdoors. It really caused a bit of a cold plunge craze, even here where a lot of people are already doing it. But now it's really quite common. And another one of those nature-based interventions that have proven more effective than pharmaceuticals even, according to some studies, at least when it comes to like milder forms of depression. Definitely worth trying because it doesn't have any side effects. So you know, why not? Only thing is, if you have any history of heart issues, then talk to your physician. I'm just throwing that in there. 
What do you do if you live in an apartment in the city and you don't have ice you can cut a hole in in the backyard because you don't have a backyard? Yeah, that one is a little trickier in the city. But if you look at Finland, for example, and even here, I mean, in, in Stockholm, it can definitely be done in the city, too. That's not to say that it is done in the U.S., today in cities, but here there there are places in the city where you can actually go swim. It's like a social thing where the city even provides little changing rooms and they might even cut up the hole for you. And there's like a little ladder and you can do your plunge. So it can be done in the city too. It's just a matter of culture, I think. This may not count as open air living, but you could put a bunch of ice in the tub or just stand in the shower under cold water. Yeah, exactly. You can get a similar effect. And I think that's what Iceman, uh, Wim Hof, I think he's got a pretty large following in the U.S. And I know that his followers would do that. They would start the day by taking a, a cold shower for a few minutes. But obviously it's inside, so it wouldn't really count as open air living. But, you know, if it works for you, hey, go with it. We haven't had uh, Wim Hof on the show, but we'll put a link to his website if people want to learn more about him. And Wim, if you're listening, you're invited. But uh, I want to keep trucking through this list of suggestions you have for people to operationalize open air living into their own lives. You also talk about something called bird radio and moose TV. What does that mean? So, yeah, I talk about that in my book as an example of showing how people here, enjoy connecting with nature even when they can't physically go outside. So these are some nature shows that have become immensely popular. One of them is called A Night of Birdsong, and it's essentially uh, a celebration of the migratory birds that come back uh, every spring. It's a radio show, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people tune into this show every year. It runs through the night, and it's quite amazing. I think I write in my book that it has more listeners, you know, in proportion to the population than both the, the Oscars and the Emmy Awards. And it's just a, an example of how you can connect with nature even when you're inside. The, the whole point of the show is just to listen to different types of birds that have returned from migration. And then there's the moose TV. That's another show that tracks this herd of moose. That just became a huge hit during the pandemic. And I don't think that was coincidence because a lot of people were working from home, feeling a bit isolated and just looking for something to connect them with the outer world. And, and a lot of people had this moose show on in the background as they were working. And it's just most of the time, nothing happens at all. There's just this background of you, all you see is like pine forest. There's <laughs> like absolutely nothing going on. But then eventually, if you're like lucky enough, yeah, you might see a bird or even, of course, a highlight then would be a moose walking by the camera. And that show too was just immensely popular. I mean, it would probably, yeah, like viewer wise, it would probably compete with some of the most popular programs on air. Just an example of how you can connect with nature when you're not outside. Coming up, Linda talks about why she thinks it's a shame that we don't go outside when the weather sucks. She makes an impassioned case for going camping, which is not a case that I receive all that well. And she lays out some of the theories about why humans 
are so drawn to and so deeply in need of nature. It's spring and that means it's graduation season and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. I really like the expression about there's no bad weather, only bad clothing, which I only started to learn in the past couple of years when we moved out of the city and and my wife actually got my son and I snow pants Mm -hmm. and other gear that allowed us to go outside no matter what was going on. You argue that we should make the affirmative decision to take walks in the rain. Can you say more about that? Yes. And I talked a little bit about this earlier, but I think it's a shame to shy away from weather that we find unpleasant because we're missing out on a unique experience and a way to experience nature, not just from its best side, but also when it's a little more challenging out there because nature obviously behaves differently during different types of weather. So when it rains outside, you know, you can discover things that you wouldn't see otherwise. And when it rains, the air is cleaner. Petrichor, for example, that's when the raindrops hit like dry earth. Bacteria are released from the ground and that creates a a very specific scent. If you know, you know, like if you've experienced it, you know what I mean. And there are just so many different sensory dimensions of experiencing different types of weather. And I just think it would be a shame to miss out on all that. 
I think in the Nordic countries, I suppose we've kind of made a virtue out of necessity because it rains here so much that we've just told ourselves, like, we just got to fake it till you make it. But we, we can't just sit inside. Let's talk about camping because I think there's probably a non-trivial percentage of the audience that is thinking there's no fucking way I'm going camping. My parents were recovering hippies. They had come of age in the 60s and then had children in the 70s, and they would force us to go on these long camping and hiking trips in Maine and Colorado, and I hated it. I was actually having lunch with my mom yesterday, and she was telling the story that she always tells, which is that... Daniel used to say this thing every time we went hiking, which is there are only two things I don't like about hiking, going up and going down, which apparently was the thing that I said when I was little. So I have done some camping as a grown up. It's actually always been in a professional context. I've done a lot of wildlife reporting around the world. My parents think it's hilarious that I've, you know, been all over Africa and Asia and South America sleeping outdoors even though I would never do that voluntarily in my personal life. So having given all of this preamble here, why should we take seriously this notion of camping, which can be so uncomfortable? I think partly because it is an opportunity to really get away from it all, to get away from the noise, the crowds, the traffic, and to really experience uh, a wilder place. I think there's no better way to sort of reconnect with the way we used to live. It is a way to, to live simply, which is becoming a lost art almost. Because to, to go camping, you need to know some simple survival skills. Like you need to make your food under certain simple circumstances and you need to know how to make fire. Like everything just boils down to the very basic nuts and bolts of just being and just surviving in nature. So to me personally, and I love camping, but if I were to try and convince somebody, I would say that it can really grow your self-esteem and self-confidence to know that you can do these things, that you can survive out there. To me, it's been very empowering. I've gone camping alone with my children a lot. And to build those skills that, I mean, that didn't happen overnight. Like you, my parents took me camping too when I was little, but then years went by without me doing any of it. And then When I had children myself, I realized that I want them to know this stuff as well. So that kind of pushed me to learn and just do it. And it's it brought a lot of new experiences and skills that I wouldn't otherwise have known. And I think in this day and age with the world being, I mean, this may sound like overly dramatic, but I think it's important to have survival skills. Like we're close enough to Russia here in Sweden that, I mean, we can clearly feel that threat. And even if we're not affected by the war, we are reminded by our government repeatedly that we need to be prepared for whatever it is. Maybe it's a cyber attack or a a natural disaster, which are, you know, becoming more and more commonplace um, than you need to be prepared for that and you need 
to know how to take care of your basic needs, the government might not be able to come to your assistance immediately. So I think that component is very important. It's not something that I think about when I'm out camping, but it's something that's sort of at the back of my head that I need to have these skills and I need to pass them on to my children. I want them to be able to handle a knife and to know how to build a fire, to know how to survive in the wild, to find shelter, to navigate. That might sound extreme, but you know, really those are basic skills that our forebears all used to have, but we have lost them. It's become a lost art. And I think there's a lot of value to keeping them alive, even if we now live in cities and we feel like we don't need them. But then I also think that camping just gives us a a unique opportunity to connect, not just with nature, but also with ourselves and our families, because you remove all the distractions and you just have the the basics left. You got to work as a team. You can't just do your own thing out there. You have to cooperate to survive. And it's a great thing to do over the generations. It's a wonderful way to bond as a family and to get away from technology. Back in the 1850s, when Friluftsliv was first developed, people didn't have smartphones. Well, today I think that's, (laughs) sometimes I feel like that's what we need to get away from the most. It's just become such an ingrained part of our lives. And I think there's definitely a need to just turn off all the notifications and dare to be in the silence. As we near the end here, you talk about some theories for why we need green Can you just say a little bit more about why being outside is not just like a nice to have? It's actually, we evolved to need it. Yeah, there are a few theories and hypotheses on this, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think they actually overlap and complement each other. The most commonly referred to hypothesis is the biophilia uh, hypothesis, which holds that we have this sort of innate need for the environments that have met our basic needs in the past. So basically, green spaces and our blue spaces, which have provided us with food and and water. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. I really think that that explains a lot. We cannot survive without nature. And then there's another theory called the attention restoration theory, or ART. And according to this theory, uh, you know, nature is free from distractions. So it evokes this sort of effortless attention. And that makes it very restorative. It replenishes our energy instead of stealing it. Because unlike our daily lives that are full of these complex tasks, you know, like driving through busy traffic or solving uh, complex problems at work. That takes a lot of directed attention and nature provides sort of the opposite of that. And then there's also psychoevolutionary theory, which is a little bit of both, you know, is related to biophilia. It was made famous by Roger Ulrich, who made this famous hospital study where he showed that just having a window with a view when you were in a hospital could actually help patients recover faster from surgery and reduce their need for medication. And I think that really says something about how powerful our connection with nature is, that just looking at scenes of nature can be 
physically and mentally healing. And then, you know, to some extent, there's also a cultural aspect of this too, so that we gravitate towards environments that we've grown up in and that where we've had positive memories, which also makes a lot of sense. If you've grown up, well, maybe not if you grew up, if you didn't like camping, like you were saying, that could turn you against nature. But a lot of people have positive memories from their childhoods. Like my grandparents took me out in the forest a lot. And I've you know, basically spent my whole childhood playing in the forest and swimming in, in the lakes here. And and that means I've really learned to appreciate that biome. And so when I'm in that biome, I immediately feel like home. So I can feel at home in, in just about any pine forest in the world because that's where I grew up. And I, I have a lot of positive memories with people that were close to me growing up. And of course, the opposite can be true too. Like people who grew up in countries where nature is not necessarily associated with something positive. I mean, there are places on this earth where natural areas can be associated with gorillas or, you know, you, that you might risk getting robbed or raped in the forest. Then of course, you're gonna have a certain fear. And we see that here with some immigrants that come to Sweden they don't necessarily have that idealized and romanticized view of nature that we do here because we've grown up in this peaceful country. So that can really affect your view of nature. But I think that's a learned behavior. So the default really is that we have this innate bond with nature. And I think it's human actions that can turn people away from nature. There's also another theory that holds that one of the reasons that why we become calm and relaxed in nature is that it triggers the production of oxytocin in the body. It's the love hormone. So just like when we're with loved ones, it's the same type of hormone can be triggered when we're in, in nature and that can help us develop almost like a friendship with nature. That's a nice place to leave it, a friendship with nature. Before I let you go, can you just remind everybody of the names of your books and anything else, your website or social media, anything else you're putting out that you might want people to know about? Yeah, my first book is There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather. And my other book is The Open Air Life. And people can find me on the web, rainorshinemama.com. And that's mama with two Ms. I'm also on social media. The handle is rainorshinemama. Instagram and Facebook mostly. Linda, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. I learned a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks again to Linda Ockerson McGurk. And thanks to you for listening. Seriously, we couldn't and wouldn't do any of this without you. So thank you. And thanks finally to everybody who worked so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And we get our theme music from Nick Thorburn of the great band Islands. They've got a new record coming out, I see. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash 
survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.